You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dr. Bruce Ames is Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Ames has received the National Medal of Science from the National Science Foundation, the Tyler Prize, which is the highest award for environmental achievement, the Golden Medal Award of the American Institute of Chemists, and the Japan Prize, among others. He has served on the National Cancer Institute Board of Directors, and he is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. Welcome to NPR. Dr. Ames? Hello. Um, so my field is prevention of disease. I've been working on that for an enormously long time. And so my, originally I worked on DNA damage and how to prevent it. And I developed a test that's used all over the world for measuring mutagens and DNA damage. And then I got interested in prevention of cancer and I worked on that for many years. And I'm passionate about finding out what's causing these diseases and figuring out how to prevent it and getting the word out. Dr. Ames, recently you appeared with Michael Crichton in a seminar for the Independent Institute. Tell us what brought you to join Dr. Crichton as he toured to talk about the work that's behind his book, State of Fear. Let's see. I'm, to start off, I'm... uh, don't know much about global warming. I, I read various sides and can form opinions, but I'm not an expert in that area. So this was a particular uh, independent institute, is a local think tank, and I've talked for them occasionally. And they said they're having Crichton, and since I've had some tangles with environmentalists, would I also say something? And I sort of talked about my stuff, not about global warming. Tell us a little bit about how reporting on science is done these days. You talk about people being interested in poisoned apples. Yeah. Well, so the problem is that every week in the newspaper, there's a new chemical scare story. There's a trace of pesticide, and and there's some story about it, or there's uh, poisoned apples was the Alar case some while back. But there's been a constant stream of these for 30 years, and it has an effect. I once taught a class, and I had the students go out and ask people, what are they afraid of in in terms of causing cancer? They're afraid of pesticides, because there's been so much hype about pesticides, which are really pretty irrelevant to the field, to cancer causation. Everybody's buying organic food and all these things, and I'm really... If you scare people about a hundreds of minor hypothetical risks, you're lost because the really important things are your diet and your smoking and uh, a few others I could go into of lesser importance. And people are completely confused now because of this campaign. And I think the environmentalists, by doing this, cause much more harm than good. Tell us a little bit about the state of the audience. Given the positive reaction to state of fear, do you think that the audience 
for the news that enjoys reading about poison apples actually believes that they're all poisoned? Do you think they believe every new hype that comes along? Well, I think it has its toll. You ask and people, that why are they switching to organic food? It's 50% more expensive uh, because they feel it's somehow safer than ordinary food. They don't trust the, the farmers. They don't trust the chemical companies, uh, all this. And I think the environmental movement's a movement of the left, and uh, they're willing to believe any capitalist poisons their grandmother for a buck, but they have great faith in bureaucrats, and all my experience all my life is just the reverse. That is, when I go to a scientific meeting, the companies have hired really smart guys, because that's their survival is based on that. And the people I deal with from environmental groups are mostly lawyers, they don't know much science, they believe it's kind of a religious-like thing. And bureaucrats work for their own self-interest like everybody else and are not very effective most of the time. So, so I come, at least my life's experience is that, but the reason I got into this battle is that I just thought it's, it's hurting people to, to trumpet these minor hypothetical risks as real risks and also there's certain, you have to tell people what are the important things, otherwise you're completely lost. And the important things is diet. Now, obesity is linked to all kinds of cancer and the country's getting obese. And if you don't get your vitamins and minerals, it breaks your chromosomes. We've shown some of that and we're working, running through all the vitamins and minerals. And I think it's gonna be most of them, you're a little low, you damage your DNA. Well. We're talking about 25% of the menstruating women in this country are getting less than half the amount of iron they need. And you start looking around, and the poor are eating this god-awful diet and can affect your brains and all these other things. And so the really important things to worry about to get people uh, realizing that they're destroying their biochemistry and destroying their brains and destroying uh, all uh, their DNA if they don't eat right. And it gets me furious that people are worried about organic food or this trace of pesticide, which is a part per billion or something. That, that scientifically, it's completely implausible. And the epidemiology can't really show minor hypothetical risks are really true, uh, or it can't show any minor risk. Epidemiology is good for big effects, smoking or, or uh, other things like that, but it's not good at seeing whether some pesticide residue increase cancer by 2% or something like that. Nobody doesn't have, we don't have the tools to do that. So all this is hypothetical, and I came out from more theoretical thing. So somebody gives some chemical to a rat and it gets cancer, okay? But what they don't tell you is half, of, between 50 and 60% of all the chemicals they've ever tested in rats come out positive, and why is that? because they're giving them at the maximum tolerated dose. And so the they made all these assumptions that we can cram all this stuff down the throat of rats and we could predict from that huge dose down to a, a low dose. They're giving them at the maximum tolerated dose. So every cancer test done is you find the level that'll kill the animal, just back off a little bit, so they only lose 10% of their weight or something like that. So it's a small, uh, it's some huge dose, and then what they never told you is 50 or 60% of the chemicals come out positive, and then they extrapolate from this huge dose down 
800,000 times or something. Now, the other thing is that what are they testing? Who's the evil man? Obviously, it's the chemical companies. And who's, uh, who's benign? Nature, of course. But that's stupid. I mean, you know that every plant has to defend itself against insects and predators. So every plant is filled with 100 toxic chemicals. And humans have bred them so they get them the levels down and we dilute them. And so we showed that the world is nature's pesticides are 99.99% of the chemicals we're eating and the 0.01% is man-made pesticide. And then you look at the hit rate in finding carcinogens, they're exactly the same. So, so they don't tell you that broccoli is full of carcinogens and cabbage is full of carcinogens. Anything you test, if you test these chemicals, they come out as positive. We've published this and we've written 150 papers about that and the environmental organizations all ignore it because they're not interested. It's, it's a mindset. It's not a scientific point of view where you look at the evidence and something doesn't fit, why, and, and keep on digging and maybe come up with a new theory or whatever. So it's, and it gets me very frustrated that it's get all this business about pesticides is drifting so far from reality. I wonder if you care to talk about the enormous popularity of a book about global warming filled with scientific data, charts, footnotes, references to studies. I'm wondering what you think the, the population is buying into Crichton's contrarian thinking. Well, I don't, I don't know. I read the book. It was the first Crichton book I read, and it, it isn't quite my cup of tea in reading, but I thought it was pretty amazing that he really did his homework. And He's a smart guy. He's an MD, and, uh, uh, and so he dug out all this information. And I get information about global warming, but I get both sides. I do that any time I'm in some... I'm always overturning conventional wisdom in science, and you have to see what everybody has to say and put it together, and is that really pinned down or is that pinned down, and finally come up with a, what you think is the truth. Now, global warming is so far out of my normal interest, and I don't have the math background and the physics background to do it, so you kind of have to trust people. But there's certainly a large community of people who are very skeptical these climate models, you put all these models in the computer, and they came up with two models, and they both predicted global warming, but what they didn't tell you is the, the two models completely disagreed with each other on practically every parameter. So it, it, people, a lot of people are very suspicious about modeling things, uh, unless you know an awful lot, and climate is just very complicated. So my general feeling is that we're much less certain about what about global warming than people are saying. And then when I look, I read a lot of economics, and when I looked into uh, Kyoto, it was some incredibly tiny uh, advance in terms of lowering the amount of CO2, and it would have practically no effect on global warming, just a, a minuscule effect that you couldn't even measure. So I thought everything was being oversold, and I, I must say, after tangling with all these environmental organizations over the years, I've become very suspicious of them as more a religious kind of movement than something that's really 
based on science, at least from my own experience. So I, maybe I come in with a slightly more skeptical view on the global warming than the average person. Because again, you read the newspapers, it's one thing after another, and you read the scientific journals, it's now unfashionable to talk against global warming, as if it's really true. And I'm still somewhat skeptical. Tell us, can you say why you think the average person, the average reader, is interested in global warming, and why they might be interested in hearing this contrary point of view, this the, the opposite of the received wisdom. Do you think that the what you call the religious fervor of the environmentalists is is helping to turn the general purpose reader off? I don't know why Crichton's book was so popular, but there are a lot of people who are skeptical about environmentalist panaceas, uh, and so maybe they thought they'd look at the other side, or maybe they just wanted to read a, a novel from Crichton. He, all his books sell very well. So anyway, I, I thought it was the whole thing was sort of interesting, and I sh really shouldn't be pinned down on uh, global warming, because I'm obviously not an expert on it. But I am an expert on pesticides, and I can uh, talk at length on that and the scientific evidence why the people shouldn't be worrying about pesticides, and they should be worrying about eating a good diet and not getting fat and doing your exercise and all the things your mom knew. Now, this is a really interesting point because it mirrors something that Bill McKibben told me. And what he said is that science fiction and popular fiction and sensationalism can sometimes get us to think about the right things or the wrong things. And it sounds like you believe that a lot of the sensationalism surrounding pesticides from Rachel Carson's Silent Spring on out to any science fiction novel in which there's some ecological damage has, caught, has directed our attention towards the dangers of pesticides when what we really should be worrying about is the 10 hamburgers we eat a week. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I don't eat 10 hamburgers a week, but, but you shouldn't be getting obese. I mean, it's a really serious uh, life-shortening uh, thing to get obese. And, uh, and obese people are at the bottom of the list on their vitamins and minerals, unless they're taking a, p a pill, and a lot of the poor don't. So uh, it, that's, that's a, a real train wreck coming down uh, the pike. or what, I, I'm mixing metaphors. Tell me a little bit about, though, what I'm interested in is how the what we see covered in the news, what we see in popular fiction and popular movies, how that directs our attention away from some of the more valid scientific research. Well, at the f science is a cumulative knowledge. So in the... T by the time something gets into the textbooks, it's been tested many ways. Still, things can get overturned. But at the frontier, it's always complicated. Something like epidemiology, where you're trying to see, uh, this group of people did this, and they, and they got lung cancer, and it was associated with smoking. That's hard to do, and it's full of confounders. The epidemiologist's joke is, Miami's a weird place. Everybody's born Hispanic and dies Jewish. Now, that's called confounding, when something else is going on that you're not. And humans, epidemiology, very difficult science. I mean, to do a, a scientist feels comfortable when 
you do an experiment, you have enough rats or whatever, and you have the controls and you test it in several ways and you finally believe it. All of us who are good scientists have fervently believed in something and then realized it was wrong. And you do that a few times and you realize nature is very complicated and you just better be more cautious. And, uh, but good scientists always have an open mind. It, you don't have an open mind about uh, the second law of thermodynamics or, or things that have been tested for many years. You'd be silly to listen to everybody who says they have a perpetual energy machine. But the minute you get into something complicated, you have to be careful. Tell me a little bit about your experience as an epidemiologist and someone who specializes in pesticides. How has popular culture and science fiction, for example, where you know, the main experience of, of, uh, uh, epi of pesticide and science fiction is that they cause mutant, giant mutant rats. Now, t tell me, how does this affect people's perception of your work and their ability to understand what you're telling them? Well, when I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm an experimental guy. And, uh, and it, I mean, you're breaking your chromosomes all the time. If you don't eat your folic acid, which is one of the vitamins, you're breaking your chromosomes just like radiation. That's where the really important stuff is coming from. Your bad diet's not this part pavilion of pesticide. That's a big fraud. So maybe I didn't quite answer your question. But say it again. Sorry. Um, tell me why, how popular culture and, for example, in science fiction, what what's happening now is that um, it, there's like a conversation that takes place. Somebody writes a book in which, for example, Crichton writes a book in which global warming is completely disproved and, and debunked, and somebody else comes up with a, with a novel which, based on uh, essentially many of the same studies, comes up with a different point of view. And I'm wondering how you feel that these popular culture aspects, when as science gets politicized, as science gets taken out of you know, the studies and the purity of where you deal with it, um, and gets out to where everybody else sees it, how do you think that that process affects how people, how well people are able to understand what you're doing? Well, I, that's a complicated question. I'm not sure. I think that if newspapers like nobody reads the newspaper, it, uh, if the headline is an apple is okay, but if an apple is poisoned, everybody's interested. So there's an inherent bias in newspapers looking for stories that people are interested in. And fear is, is easy to sell and scares. So uh, that's part of the game. But you do that too much, people get worried about the wrong things. Now, you've spent some time working in the National Science Foundation, I take it? Uh, no. There's something called the National Medal of Science. And I won it a few years ago, so I'm on the... Uh, NSF committee to choose the new National Medal of Science. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience, anything that you've experienced from the National Science Foundation? Do you think it works? Is it a hidebound bureaucracy, or do you see it as someplace where real science might actually get done? No, uh, Washington hires good people. They're trying to fill these bureaucracies, 
But, you know, bureaucracies, there's a tendency not to fire people, and you get rewarded by... So I'm a great believer in incentives. If the main incentive of a bureaucracy is to metastasize, that's what they're going to do. So it's not to uh, solve problems for the least amount of money. Businesses are trying to solve pro make a product you want to buy voluntarily, uh, and they're competing with 10 other guys, so only one out of 10 restaurants succeeds. So it's fiercely competitive, and science is fiercely competitive too. So in a way, having a monopolistic bureaucracy, you know it can do some good, but it's, it's very hard for it to, to do the right thing. So, but when businesses are competing, yeah. they're competing for your money. They don't care about anything else other than that dollar coming in yeah, and the people. profit. Yeah, they're people. Some, uh, about 3% of people work for altruism, and 10% uh, of people will do awful things no matter what, and the others are in between. And so, and that's true in bureaucracies, in business, in whatever you pick. So you just want to align the incentives, as Adam Smith said a long time ago. We don't base the getting our dinner from the uh, our meat and our bread from the altruism of the shopkeepers. They give you a good product. You go back to them over and over again. Could you talk about the politicization of science? How politics? We've seen quite a bit of it in the in the recent Republican administration. I, I wonder if you care to comment on it. It specifically impacts you, doesn't it, a little bit? Well, I don't know. I think all politicians want to get reelected, and they. Uh, so I thought there was politicization of science in the previous administration, in this administration, in every administration, because they have their own agendas. And But mostly science keeps pretty clear of that. It's when you get into things that involve spending huge amounts of money and uh, and public policy that you start getting two sides and all of that. So then you, if it's going to be based on science, it better be based on really solid science. So tell me a little bit about public policy, science, and politics, because that's a really interesting um, coalition where these things come together. Well, again, I'm not an expert on that. It, uh, my main experience is with environmentalists who I felt were barking up the wrong tree in a lot of cases. Not that anybody wants the chemical companies dumping the garbage out the back door, but you need rules, but you don't want to spend huge amounts of money on unimportant things because then you're killing people because you're not putting the money into other things. So a highway department spends $200,000 to save a life. That's a real life, and, and you want to do a certain amount of that. Uh, where you draw the line, you can argue about but if some other government agencies sending, spending $10 million to save a hypothetical life, and the highway department can save a real life for $200,000, then you have a problem. And, so, and the only way to solve that problem is not to set up another bureaucracy, because every bureaucracy works for the thing they're charged with. If, you're, if a bureaucracy is charged with getting every last part per billion of chemi synthetic chemicals out of the environment, that's what they're going to do. And, and they'll soon be on to parts per trillion. And, and for them, that's the most important thing in the world. If you have all these agencies competing to save the most lives for the dollar, you get a very dis different distribution of how you spend your money.
or as you can see, that's not my expertise, and I can sound off on that as well as the next guy, but that's kind of what my experience has led me to that view. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to comment on um, science fiction in that, for example, one of the things that science fiction does really well is come up with shorthands to, you know, instantly categorize something. For example, um, a good example is is the the term frankenfoods. So I, I'm wondering, in one in one word, you have you have a combination between uh, uh, being construct, constructed of pieces of rotting corpses and the food that's on your table. So I'm wondering if you care to talk about how science fiction can sometimes get us to think about the wrong things. Yeah, well, Frankenfood, I think, is it's crazy because it's modern genetic engineering is just a more precise way for doing what humans have been doing with food forever. And the earliest... Humans, when they planted things, they sent, selected varieties that gave better yields or were more resistant to drought or whatever. And then everything we, on our table has been worked on by the geneticists for the last hundred years because that's what we do. We send, select better varieties, and you mute, you irradiate the the corn, and you batter up what's all its chromosomes, and you pick the variety that's a little better. But it's a very crude method. Now, the techniques are much better. You can take a gene from here and stick it in there. You're not taking 20 other genes you don't know anything about. And so it's just a method for doing things more effectively. Now, you can also take a gene from a different organism and put it in if there's some reason to do it. But it's, that's nothing odd. So genetic engineering is going to completely revolutionize agriculture. We'll get more food out of less land, and I thought what, that's what we want to do for the environment. And the fear that's been drummed up about this is all crazy. It's, it is just, uh, it's, uh, so I have sort of zero sympathy for all of that. But the real danger, as you say, is not that the, the frankenfoods themselves are dangerous, but the danger is that the way they change agriculture itself, because now agriculture is under the thumb of the corporate people who own those genes. So to me, it seems like one of the, that's in one of the ways that science fiction can get you to think about the wrong thing. Yeah. You think, oh, this food is dangerous. What's really dangerous is the economic, the, ch the shift in the economic model that's happening. Yeah. But the number of farmers has been going down for 200 years in the U.S. And it's because, do you worry about the tractor manufacturers? They control everything because they're selling you tractors. Or, I, that somehow doesn't bother me. That's part of, of the world changing and economics and competition. There's always somebody new coming up who can uh, undercut it or has a better idea. So I think that's just part of capitalism, and I'm all for it. So We've been speaking with Dr. Bruce Ames. He's a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.